Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Uh, we are not going to have warehouse worship this morning, but we are going to have children's church, so kindergarten down can be dismissed at this time. It's going to be all right. In Matthew chapter 16, a pivotal episode and story in the life of Jesus and his disciples says in Matthew 16, verse 13 and following, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. There is a place in modern Israel that is called Banias. Banias. It is in northern Israel. And actually, Banias is a rather interesting um, geological structure there. It sits at the base of Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon is the highest point in Israel. And uh, I think there is snow on Mount Hermon year-round. And... But in the spring of the year, in the summer months, the snow melts on Hermon and it seeps into those, uh, the rock of that mountain and it emerges in springs at the base and it becomes the waters that feed the Jordan River. And at Banias, those springs is one of the locations where the water comes up. But there is a, there's a rock structure at Banias and uh, there's a rock cliff, and then there's solid bedrock at that place. I'm actually going to show you pictures of this here in just a minute because uh, Daryl Smith's a visual learner, so I see pictures, so I'm going to show you pictures. Um, yeah, be looking forward to that. It's all downhill after that, though. Um, but the pagan people established that as a place of worship for Baal. So from ancient times, it was because of the geological structure and all, it was a place where the pagans uh, worshiped their gods. Uh, the Greeks, after that, then the Romans, they all built temples to their gods. 
the Roman god of Pan, who is a fertility god, had a temple there. Zeus had a temple there. And beside those temples, there was this cave or hole in the ground that was... um, The ancients said there is no bottom to it. It's a bottomless pit. And so the entrance of that cave, the ancients said, were the gates to Hades, the underworld. And so there is a Roman god, Hades, but the place where he dwells is also called Hades. And they said this is the entrance, this is the gate into Hades. It is a a bottomless pit. This is where people enter into the underworld. Uh, Herod the Great, in the decades before Jesus was born, built a temple, temple there to Caesar Augustus. Get this. Uh, and really, Herod the Great did it to win the favor of the emperor. I mean, what is more flattering? I mean, if you want to stoke somebody's ego, just build them a temple and have people worship them as a god. I mean... So this is what Herod did to win the favor of Caesar Augustus. And this temple is built there, and the people would go there. And so there's, uh, in uh, the Roman Empire history, starting with Julius Caesar, uh, the, the Caesars used to be deified after death, but starting with Julius Caesar, they began to be deified in their life. Caesar is God. He is Lord starting with Caesar, Julius Caesar and then Caesar Augustus. And the people would go there and they would proclaim with their mouths that Caesar is Lord. He is God. And so they practiced emperor worship here at modern-day Banias. Uh, Herod the Great's son, I know this is a little bit of history. I'm about to show you the pictures, Okay. Okay. Um, so Herod's son Philip, who becomes a tetrarch, names this location, Banias, his capital city, and he names it after Caesar, and so it becomes Caesarea. But to distinguish it from other Caesareas, other towns that they had named for Caesar, this modern-day Banias was called from the time... Jesus' time, Caesarea Philippi, because Philip was the one who called it Caesarea. I want to show you some pictures. You know, can I? Sh- uh, can you show me picture one first? I don't know. I'm sorry, I didn't go over this. Uh, we can look at any of them. It's fine. Uh, the cute girl on the left is my wife. But anyhow, this is not what the picture's about. Stay focused. So you can see not only the, the, the cliff there, I'm sorry, I'm in trouble, but I stay in trouble, it's all right. And then there's bedrock, and they would build, and you can see how they dug into the side of the cliff, and they would make the place of worship. Maybe the next picture, let's see what we've got. Um, this is actually the gates of Hades. This is the cave, and the ancients said we can drop a line down there, and we never hit the bottom. And, uh, oh, show another picture. Uh, oh, there's me in tourist mode um, or Africa mode. I wear the hat both places. Uh, but you can see kind of the rock 
cliff there and then the bedrock. Show the last picture. Yes, this. And so this is an artist's rendition of what that would have looked like in ancient times with the series of temples to the different ancient gods of the Greeks and the Romans. And Caesar Augustus Temple is on the far left and it covers up actually the gates of Hades and they would come there and they would worship their pagan gods and Caesar became identified with these gods whose places of worship were in that place. And so, that's the end of the pictures actually. Sorry about that. Matthew 16, verse 13. Towards the end of Jesus' three-year ministry, Jesus brings his disciples to that place, Caesarea Philippi. And he says to his disciples, Matthew 16, 13, who do men say that I am? <laughs> now the point in the location, Caesarea Philippi, the Romans call Caesar Zeus, Hermes, Pan, all these different names of gods. Who do men say that I am? And the disciples answer in verse 14. Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Verse 15. He says to them, but who do you say that I am? Not do what, other, what do other people say about me? What's the word on the street? What, what do you say about me? One of the words, and I, I didn't really pick up on this, but I, I've thought about this this week. What Jesus said to his disciples but who do you say that I am? And I'm placing the emphasis on the word say. Who do you say that I am? And I, just, I was just thinking about this this week. And Jesus didn't say, he didn't say, what do you think I am? He did not even say, what do you believe in your heart that I am? But he said, what do you say? What are the words that come out of your mouth? What, what are you willing to articulate, to say, to let out of your mind and your heart. What do you speak? What do you proclaim? Who do you say that I am? Not what do you think I am. What do you believe that I am? Who do you say that I am? And I want to pause at that moment because I, I believe there is, in, there is a pause between verse 15 and 16. But just think about it. They spent over two years with Jesus and it's, this is like the final exam. Who do you say? What are you willing today to articulate about me? The, the ancients call Caesar all of these names. But what do you, who do you say that I am? I think, I know there's, we just kind of read the next verse. But I think there's a pause there. We would call it an awkward pause. like we're having right now. And of course, in that next verse, it's Peter, as only Peter could, with conviction and confidence, says in verse 16, but Simon Peter answered and said, this is what he spoke with his mouth, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
course, the word Christ there is the Greek word, which the Hebrew word would be Messiah. He was saying, you are Messiah. But not only that, you are deity. You are the son of the living God. Peter identifies the identity of Jesus. I would contend today that there is power in what we say. Not what we think only, not what we believe in our heart. It is what we say. And so when we have wedding ceremonies, <laughs> you're either going to repeat the vows or you're going to say, I do, but you're going to say something. That's like, well, I, I feel in love today. You know, no, no, you're, you're, we're going to stand up in front of all these people and you're going to say it. Either you're going to repeat it after the preacher or you're going to say, I do. No. We get in a courtroom and we put our hand on a Bible and do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God, or whatever that is? No, you have to say, I do. You have to speak it out loud. There is significance in the spoken word, and Peter has the courage and the conviction to speak. Maybe what the others thought, maybe what the others believed, but Peter spoke it. Notice what Jesus says to Peter. So Peter has spoken, now Jesus speaks, but if you look in verse 17, Jesus speaks to Simon, Peter. And he says, verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I don't, I don't have time to talk about the names of you know, what he calls him. Verse 18 is what is significant to me. For this morning. Jesus says in verse 18, and I also say, Peter, I'm going to say something out loud. You have said something out loud about who I am. Peter, I'm going to say something out loud about who you are. I'm going to articulate, you know who's going to listen to it that day? The other disciples, who quite honestly didn't apparently have the conviction or the courage to step up and say, no, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter was. Jesus said, well, let me address you, Peter. Let me say something in front of everybody else. That you are Peter, which is a Greek word for rock. And then he says, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Um, man, I don't have time to explain all of this, but um, uh, he uses the word Peter or rock twice here. And one time he addresses Peter and he says, Peter, uh, it is a masculine ending in the Greek language. So it says, Petros. He says, I also say to you that you are Petros, rock. But then he says, and on this, Petra, not Petros, but Petra. So I, I know this is too much, too much. But he moves from a masculine ending to a neuter ending. So he was not, if he had wanted to say that this rock was Peter, then he would have used that same ending, but he didn't say that. He said, you are Petros, and on this Petra, this thing, I will build my church. And I don't have time to articulate it all to this morning, but the, this rock refers back to Peter's profession of his mouth. I'm going to call you rock, 
But I just want you to know that on your profession, that profession that you just made of the identity of Jesus, I will build my church. The foundation of the church is the profession of the identity or the confession of the identity of Jesus that he is the Messiah. He is the son of the living God. (laughs) He says, I'm going to build my church on that profession. Hold that thought. And I love this next phrase when he says, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Do you realize where they stood that day? They stood at Banias at Caesarea Philippi at the gates of Hades. The thing I like about that is that it denotes Coach Maurice, it denotes not a defensive posture but an offensive posture. Jesus didn't say, now, Peter, you're the rock, and we're going to build a fortress around the church, and the forces of evil are never going to overcome us. Peter didn't, Jesus didn't say that. No, he speaks of an offensive perspective that says, we're about to storm the gates of hell, and the gates of Hades are not going to be able to overcome what we're coming at them with. Do you understand that? That's a huge difference. And what was he talking about? He was talking about the profession of Peter will storm the gates of hell and hell will not be able to prevail against it. Now he goes on in verse 19 and he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and, heaven and whatever you bind on heaven. I'm sorry. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Notice verse 20. Then he commanded... What is, notice this. Then he commanded his disciples. Who do men say that I am? Peter speaks. Jesus speaks to Peter. The disciples hear it. Then Jesus turns to the other 11. And he says something to them. Then he commanded his disciples. And this is rather odd. That they should not tell, I'm sorry, they should tell no one that Jesus was the Christ. Hmm. Peter has spoken about my identity and he has made his profession, but I don't want you to say anything. And there, I think there's several reasons here. And one of them would be just it wasn't Jesus' time. And when they began to proclaim that Jesus was the Messiah, it was going to stir up a backlash. And therefore, Jesus is saying it's not time. It is implied in that verse, there will be a time. But it's not the time now. In fact, it's inter- I think there's another significant thing. Because we move from verse 20 to verse 21. And I believe what Jesus begins to say. So notice verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised the third day. I believe one of the reasons that Jesus said to his disciples, don't tell anyone about my identity, is because there was more to the message and the works of redemption were not complete. Just There's more. If the foundation of the church is the profession of the identity of Jesus, that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God, 
If that's the foundation of the church, the church will be built as the church proclaims what Jesus did in his death and resurrection. And it's like, wait, I don't want you to tell anybody my identity because you don't know the full story yet. Just wait until the, and it's, it's coming. He's about to head to Jerusalem and he's going to die. And I believe that's one of the reasons he told him, it's not time yet, but the scripture implies the time will come. And in fact, that's what happened. Jesus, days, weeks, months after this, less than a year, goes to Jerusalem. He is killed, and as we celebrate on Easter Sunday morning, on the third day, he rose again. Jesus, by his resurrection, busted down the gates of death and hell. (laughs) He was the first who stormed the gates. And he defeated death. Yes, he did. (laughs) Thank you, David. And in time, Jesus commanded them to preach, tell, proclaim, testify, say who Jesus was and what he had done. And Jesus sent them on the offensive, and the disciples went and they built the church. Not on a program, not on a building, but by the profession of their mouths. Of who Jesus was and what Jesus had done in his death and resurrection. In fact, Peter does this, and we see this in the book of Acts, as Peter stands on the day Pentecost and he preaches about the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the early church proclaimed in the midst of a culture that said Caesar is Lord they proclaimed that Jesus is Lord he is the crucified Lord he is the risen Lord in fact they spoke it with conviction and courage and the church was built it was this very profession that was ingrained in their their gospel content. We see this in the writings of Paul, particularly in Philippians 2, 9 and following. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This statement of Jesus as Lord is ingrained in their their confession, their profession in Romans 10, 9. Paul puts it this way. He says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, or you can translate that in the Greek, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Jesus' Lord was the profession, the confession of the early church. And so in the first and second century, the Romans brought the Christians before the, the government authorities. 
And they told them to denounce the name of Jesus. And to do that, they were to confess Caesar as Lord. They were brought before the magistrates. And if they would say with their mouth, if they would say it, Caesar is Lord, they were free to go. But what did the early Christians say on penalty of death? They said, we will not say Caesar is Lord. Jesus is Lord. They said it with their mouth. And the early church was built, and we stand on that foundation today. Hmm. Won't you stand with me this morning? And I want to say this, and then I'm going to close. Church, Christians, the question of Jesus comes to us today. Not what do you think in your mind, not what do you believe in your heart, but the question is. Who do you say that I am? The church is built on the profession that Jesus is Lord. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. That He died for our sins and He rose on the third day. Jesus is Lord. It's all contained in that. People in our midst need to hear what we have to say. I don't know know if they understand what we think or what we believe in our hearts. There is great significance and there is power. And the church is built, church, on our profession, what we say. So the question that Jesus posed to the twelve, I believe, is posed to us today. Who do you say in your circle of people that you encounter at work, school, neighborhood, wherever it is, family? What do you have the conviction and the courage to say? And I believe there's this the opportunities will present themselves. And the question is, do we have the courage and the conviction to say? It's only then that we take the gospel on the offensive. We've talked about apologetics for the last 11 weeks. And apologetics is a defense of the gospel. And I want you to know that there's two sides of the ball. You not only play defense, You can't win a game just playing defense. You have to score. And the way that you score is to take the gospel and offense. And it's not about about a program. It is about what we say to those that we encounter. And I would challenge you that with conviction and courage, you would go on offense and you would speak who Jesus is and what he has done.
And God will use that to build His church. Amen? Amen. I'm going to close in prayer. We're going to be dismissed. Uh, I will be at the front if you'd like to visit with me. Uh, if you have a decision to make, I'm at the front. If you're visiting and you wanted to meet the pastor for some strange reason, uh, I'll be at the front. I don't know. Maybe. Um, I'll be at the front, though, if you have decisions to make. And I hope that you have a great day. And uh, let me pray. Father, today we thank you for the power of the gospel. And I pray that you would give us courage and conviction to speak the message that the first followers of Jesus had. And God, you used it to explode the growth of the church. And I pray that you would use us this week as we encounter people and opportunities are given to us. We pray it would be for your glory and for your honor. We pray it all in Jesus' name.